There are over 100 million pieces of debris that are greater than one millimeter in size that are orbiting the Earth, and less than 1% of debris that could cause mission-ending damage to satellites is currently tracked. Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, why the intelligence community is concerned by the proliferation of space debris, and how it plans to get a better grasp of the millions of millimeter-sized pieces of junk orbiting the Earth. It's Tuesday, August 15th, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The U.S. Digital Service will pilot new types of digital projects, establish fresh short and long-term objectives to help hold itself to account, and push for stronger partnerships with tech organizations in the government as part of a new strategic plan for 2024. That comes from documents exclusively obtained by FedScoop and that were confirmed by USDS that paint a picture for USDS's strategic priorities going into 2024. A top-line priority for USDS in 2024 will be clearly and collaboratively establishing near- and long-term objectives for our work and holding ourselves and agencies accountable to them. That's according to the documents from USDS. Detailed also in the materials are efforts to work with OMB on the budgeting process to support agency resourcing, increase USDS's investment in organizational and talent operations, and better emphasize stories that humanize its work and impact in addition to highlighting important data points. In other news, protests of NIH's CIO SP4 government-wide IT services acquisition vehicle continue to trickle in. The latest comes from Incerso Corporation, a federal government IT services company which is challenging the National Institutes of Health's decision to eliminate it from the competition for the $50 billion IT contract. In a complaint recently filed in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, Incerso alleges that the agency's Acquisition and Assessment Center acted unreasonably, unlawfully, and contrary to the terms of the solicitation when evaluating its proposal for it. The complaint was filed under seal in July and made public in a redacted version on August 1st. Incerso's challenge comes as the agency is again taking corrective action on the solicitation after the Government Accountability Office sustained dozens of challenges to the solicitation after it has been dogged by pre-award protests since the agency first requested proposals in May 2021. You can read more about these stories and much more at fedscoop.com. Small pieces of space debris, also known as space junk, have become a massive issue across the space industry, threatening the nation's future of space operations. And as commercial space flight grows in popularity and some of the U.S.'s greatest threats bolster their anti-satellite military operations, the more than one million debris objects greater than one millimeter in size orbiting the Earth have become a matter of national security that has caught the attention of the intelligence community's research arm. The Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency, also known as IARPA, recently issued four awards to prime contractors to support its space debris identification and tracking program. Sintra, as it's called, aims to investigate the interaction of orbital debris with the surrounding space environment and drive the state of the art to detect, track, and characterize lethal non-trackable orbital space debris, which poses a risk to all space missions, including those of the intelligence community. 
Program Manager Dr. Alexis Truitt, a former NASA Hubble researcher turned IARPA PM, joins the Daily Scoop podcast to discuss the ambitions of the Central Program. Alexis, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a great opportunity to talk about the Centra program. Well, Alexis, your program, you're the program manager of the intelligence community's newly launched space debris identification and tracking program, as you referred to it as Sintra. And uh, that was just awarded via contracts to four prime research partners. But, uh, you know, before we get into the specifics of the contract and the nuts and bolts of all of that, I thought it would be good to start our conversation off today, setting the stage for uh, a question around why is IARPA and the intelligence community concerned with space debris? Sure. Um, so I, I started my career early at NASA's Space Telescope Science Institute. And then shortly after, I, I started at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency as a scientist there. I, I saw across the board the potential uh, damage that debris could create and the impacts to missions. So debris not only affects you know, commercial satellites, but it affects the ones that the IC cares about the most to conduct their missions. Um, so the IC has a vested interest in trying to tackle this problem. And, and that's why we stood up the Centra program. That's great context and a great uh, way to start framing the conversation. And, and Alexis, now that we have an understanding of why the intelligence community cares about this, can you paint a maybe more vivid picture of what these small particles of space debris can do to uh, spacecraft and other uh, devices or satellites out in space and why it's so important to avoid them? Sure. There are over 100 million pieces of debris that are greater than one millimeter in size that are orbiting the Earth. Um, and less than 1% of debris that could cause mission-ending damage to satellites is currently tracked. Um, and we, we often call this debris lethal, non-trackable debris because of the damage it can cause and how difficult they are to detect and track. Um, so think about the speed of the orbits. The average impact velocity of a piece of debris colliding with a satellite is over 22,000 miles per hour. So impacts are more like explosions rather than collisions. And it's more so about the energy that's created during these collisions. So for example, a um, one centimeter size debris um, colliding with a satellite creates the equivalent amount of energy as a hand grenade explosion. Um, and you know, smaller pieces of debris can cause mission ending damage as well. So even a one millimeter piece of debris colliding with a satellite can create um, an impact crater 10 times its size. So depending on where it's colliding with the satellite, it could really um, cause a mission ending impact. Wow, that's incredible. You know, leaning a little bit more into the the Sintra program uh, as it is in this current stage after the awarding the contracts, you know, tell us a little bit about the overarching goal or goals of the program as it relates to all of that space debris that you just referenced. Sure. So Sintra aims to detect, track, and characterize space debris between one millimeter to 10 centimeters in size in any orbital plane about the Earth. Um, at IARPA, we invest in high-risk, high-payoff uh, research that can really uh, advance the state of the art by beyond what we can do currently. So we're really looking for um, a revolutionary approach rather than an evolutionary approach. Um, and 
based on the research that we've done across industry, academia, and government um, through our RFI that we posted last year and the proposer stay that we held, we really believe that we are in the right place to contribute to the solution here. So tell me about, you know, you're, you're talking about measuring space debris and uh, all these different sizes, which sound really small from centimeters to millimeters, and that there's these gaps that currently exist uh, with all these flying pieces of debris in outer space. But tell me how that, how that gets done. What's the tech side of it? Uh, I would imagine it's some sort of sensors, but um, when, when, you know, the, the, I guess, teams that are working under Sintra or are developing things, what are they doing to sort of get their arms around all that space debris that's up there? The teams that were selected are taking a holistic approach to the problem um, in the sense that uh, there are multi-phenomenology solutions that are being pursued. Um, and you know, a common theme across the problem, across the teams, is to take a look at the data that we have already and look at it in a new way. Potentially, we could be discovering signatures for debris that aren't fully understood at this point. So there's a, you know, a heavy push in the research and development to understand uh, new signatures that are probably low in the signal to noise um, that are created as debris interacts with the space environment. So we're looking at um, maybe electrostatic discharge, plasma density, perturbations, things that happen um, in the physical environment that uh, need more research and development to understand. So we have um, some efforts across the teams to look at existing data in a new way rather than launching new satellites to track debris. Um, so we're really pushing some of those low TRL, those, those um those research areas that are have not been fully developed to better understand them and, and look at existing data from an, an, a new perspective. And once we understand some of these new signatures, we'll, it could inform a future architecture for persistently monitoring the debris population. Gotcha. So it's more about the development of these new technologies and less about the actual collection. Am, am I correct in my understanding of that? There's a good balance of both. So across the board with the teams that were selected, you'll see some efforts to collect new data, um, even develop new sensors that could be transitioned across, across government uh, from ground-based sensors using existing ground-based sensors and space-based sensors, uh, looking at the data in a new way, looking at new collection modes, uh, thinking about how to um, take one observable from one sensor type and have it inform a, a, the collection from a, from a secondary sensor. Um, so it, it's between, there's a, a balance between the data analysis and the collection um, that we're considering. That's helpful to understand. And uh, I'm curious, you know, once that it, that kind of data is collected, or you can refer to it maybe as intelligence, since this isn't a matter of intelligence. Once it's collected, where's that going uh, in in the long term? Is it, you know, some, are you partnering with other agencies like NASA and Space Force, or is it going to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence? Who's using this data uh, ultimately, whether that's, you know, down the road after this program kind of matures some of these technologies? or even more immediately, uh, who's gonna be the sort of stakeholder that is uh, gonna be using the, the data and intelligence collected from this? Sure, one of the near-term transitions that we hope to achieve as part of Sintra is to develop 
a collective database uh, from the data collected by performers and collected by government um, that could be transitioned across government to multiple stakeholders, be it NASA, uh, the Space Force, or any others in the DOD and IC. So for example, we have our testing and evaluation team for Centra who will test and validate the approaches and algorithms that are created by performers. Um, those testing and evaluation teams are MIT Lincoln Laboratory, the Naval Research Laboratory, Los Alamos National Laboratory, and uh, JHU Applied Physics Laboratory. So those teams will be collecting data and providing those to the performers to use as part of their development and also reserve some of that data for independent testing and evaluation. All the while, the performers will be collecting their own data, looking at their own historical data, and providing that data to the Centra database um, that other performers can access. So um, there's a sense of collaboration amongst the teams and that there will be um, a collective database that all performers can access and be on the same page. Um, and that, that database will be transitioned across government uh, for use for individual agencies and organizations to protect their own space assets. Well, that sounds like quite a, quite a, uh, uh, a I, I guess just quite a goal that, that you're looking to accomplish. So that sounds very interesting. And uh, researching a little bit about the program and some of its aims, it, it, it sounds like there's maybe two different uh, issues at hand. There's sort of the commercial domestic, um, you know, programs that are launching a lot of new uh satellites and devices into outer space, which could be some, somewhat cluttering the space. But there's also this other element of uh, some of our biggest adversaries or competitors like China and Russia doing things as well that could be creating matters of national security. So I'm curious how the program looks to address those matters of national security, um, because it, it seems like everyone's pushing the space more and more, um, whether it's here domestically or again, some of our adversaries abroad. That's a great point. Um, space is typically referred to as the Wild West amongst the space community, simply because there are no international regulations in space. Um, there are um, perceived norms, but um, there are no repercussions for um, threats to orbit sustainability. Um, so there are, as you say, there, there are two elements here, you know, protecting um, you know, our, our space assets and, and then the launch of more and more commercial constellations. From my understanding, um, there are over 7,000, there are up to 7,000 to 8,000 satellite, active satellites in orbit. Um, and, you know, the, the mission sets range from communications to GPS and, and, and science missions. Over half of those satellites are Star Starlink satellites, and I believe Starlink is, you know, um, planning to launch more and more in the coming years, up to 40,000 active satellites in the near future. So, you know, understanding that orbits will be congested pretty quickly, and, and these new satellites will be subject to potential debris impacts, the, the fact that the United States relies more and more on commercial imagery it's not just our, our own IC assets, but it, it's also um, protecting the commercial missions as well. 
So Alexis, as we close out our conversation here, uh, in terms of the contracts and, you know, now that they're awarded, what, what comes next under the Centra program in terms of that performance of work and how will uh, that play out? Um, it looks like there's some elements of test and evaluation as well that you mentioned um, with some of those partners, but how is the, the contract itself going to play out now that those uh, initial awards have been awarded? So Centra will be a four-year program. There'll be two phases of the program. The first phase is the effort to detect, track, and characterize debris. Um, the second phase is to develop a method to autom to persistently monitor the debris population. Um, so, you know, the first phase, we want to really strengthen those new uh, research approaches and gain confidence in those approaches. And then in the second phase, we want to develop a solution that could be used to persistently monitor and, and to provide alerts to the satellite owners and operators as to potential um, collisions with debris. Throughout the program, there will be milestone assessments. So the testing and evaluation team will take the, the progress from each uh, performer and assess them against the Centra program metrics. Um, they will provide feedback to the performer so they can incorporate the lessons learned into future iterations. Um, if we have four performers that are achieving their metrics, uh, we're, we're not inclined to down-select or, or to, um, to you know, reduce the number of performers. If we have four performers that are achieving their metrics, we want to um, continue down their paths because each approach is, is pretty um, unique and we want to offer a diverse solutions to the government especially since we want to consider multiple transition pathways. Well, it sounds like quite a program, and we definitely look forward to seeing what co what comes out of it next. Um, but Alexis, thanks so much for your time and your thoughts today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. You can learn more about Space Debris at the thedailyscooppodcast.com. And now for this next segment, I'll pass it over to my colleague Wyatt Cash for a discussion with Daily Scoop sponsoring partner Corellium. It's hard to imagine getting through the workday without relying on mobile devices. But the world today also relies on a vast array of smart devices, from automobiles to IoT sensors. Protecting those devices and the data streaming over them requires a new generation of software development tools. I'm Wyatt Cash with Scoop News Group, and joining us to talk about why those tools are especially important to government agencies is Amanda Gorton, co-founder and CEO of Corellium. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So let me start by uh, asking, enterprises have been using mobile devices for years. What's changing about how we manage them, and why should government agencies pay closer attention these days? Sure. Well, to put it simply, what's changing about mobile devices and, and changing very rapidly, by the way, over the last couple of years is the threat landscape. Um, there's really no question that uh, cybersecurity threats have been on the rise over the last decade uh, and that mobile devices are at the forefront of that activity. Uh, and in response to the rise in those security threats, mobile device vendors have been increasingly locking down their operating systems uh, and implementing more security mechanisms to help protect consumers against these threats. 
The problem is that every time they implement these new security measures, threat actors are, of course, evolving to overcome them. And so what's happening as a result is that uh, security threats have become more and more specialized and more and more sophisticated. Uh, So today, government agencies are are now facing uh, this very rapidly evolving um, and increasingly sophisticated mobile threat landscape. Uh, And then at the same time, the very security mechanisms that vendors are implementing to make it harder to attack these devices uh, are making it equally challenging for government agencies uh, to identify, uh, research, uh, and and protect against these new, uh, more sophisticated threats. And really, the old ways of confronting and handling these threats simply won't work anymore. Government agencies need new tactics and new tools if they want to continue to stay a step ahead of these next generation cyber threats. And that's really why we created Corellium. Um, Our platform provides uh, a really groundbreaking virtual environment for better research, development, and and testing on mobile devices. Uh, It gives developers uh, the ability to spin up virtual iOS and Android devices with really powerful built-in tools um, designed by security experts. Um, So it's really purpose-built to give government agencies the capabilities that they need to confront and and stay a step ahead of the next generation of cyber threats. Well, as I understand it, uh, security testing and research typically isn't done in an emulated environment because it doesn't offer an accurate enough representation of how things will behave in the real world. So how is your platform different in helping agencies address that? Well, that's exactly right. Um, Emulators typically don't let you run the same software that runs on a real device. You, You typically... Um, either have to recompile your code or modify it in some way to get it to one in an emulator. Uh, But you don't actually have to do that with Corellium, and that is part of what makes us unique. Um, Corellium runs exactly the same iOS and Android software that would run on a real device. Um, It runs exactly the same apps that would run on a real device. Um, So it's not actually emulation, it's true virtualization. And so what that means is the software that's being developed and tested on our virtual devices is exactly the same as what runs on a production device. Um, And of course, to your point, that ability to run real production code is especially critical for security work, um, particularly for malware research, for exploit research, Fidelity is absolutely crucial. And, you know, I think it's safe to say uh, Windows-based virtual machines are commonly used for analyzing malware that targets servers and desktops. But I'm curious, is that also true for analyzing mobile malware? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, You're absolutely correct. Virtual machines have 
always been an essential tool for analyzing malicious software um, because they provide a much safer and more controllable environment for research. So not only does it prevent your machine from becoming contaminated, it also gives you much greater ability to manipulate and inspect the target software. But before Corellium, virtual machines weren't really available for mobile devices. So that traditional malware analysis tool wasn't really available to mobile malware researchers. But now we're providing true virtual models of mobile devices, which can be used to detonate and inspect malware in ways that simply aren't possible on physical devices. Um, so that's a real game changer for mobile malware and cyber threat teams. Well, let's maybe talk about some practical examples. Can you can you share some examples of the ways that mobile malware researchers and specialists at civilian or defense or intelligence agencies might use Corellium? Sure, absolutely. Um, virtual devices um, can be advantageous for mobile malware researchers in a wide number of ways. Um, for starters, if you have a suspected malware sample, a virtual device gives you a safe place to detonate it. Um, if you put it on a real device, that device is going to be contaminated forever. <laughs> you really, you can never be sure you've ever fully eliminated it, even if you wipe the device. Um, similarly, virtual devices provide uh, greater uh, environmental control um, because they, they give the researcher full uh, operating system level access, kind of like God mode. Um, you could think of it like if you if you wanted to test the impact of wind on a new car model that you're building, um, instead of going out and trying to find a windy place outside, uh, you'd probably want to use a wind tunnel where you could manipulate the conditions exactly the way you want to. Um, so uh, operating systems, especially mobile operating systems, are incredibly locked down. Um, even if you have a jailbreak or you can root the device, you generally don't have that full control of the system. But with a virtual device, you do. Now, Corellium actually goes a step further in giving researchers uh, very specific tools for deeply analyzing and inspecting malware samples. So for example, uh, a very common practice in malware analysis is to uh, what's called hook a function, um, you know, intercept uh, a message or an, an, an event uh, to get a better idea of what the software is doing and how it's doing it. And this is typically done uh, using a tool like Frida, um, and it's typically done at the application level. The problem with that is it can be extremely difficult to find the right place to hook into. And then even if you do manage to find the right place, uh, it typically isn't applied globally or, or system-wide. Um, plus, if your malware is sophisticated enough, uh, it might be able to actually detect what you're doing and then choose not to reveal itself. 
Um, but with Corellium, a, a researcher can hook at the hypervisor level rather than at the application level. Um, and that makes it much, much easier to hook at the right place. Uh, it makes it possible to apply that hook globally and it keeps it invisible to the malware. Um, so, you know, in addition to simply analyzing malware, virtual devices can also be very useful for obtaining malware samples. Um, so they can be set up with custom kind of target profiles and then used to attract malware attacks. Um, it's a practice called honeypotting. Um, and since the virtual device is essentially indistinguishable from a real device, it makes an absolutely ideal environment for attracting, capturing, and analyzing the malware all in one spot. Uh, the other really key advantage of virtual devices um, is that they scale very easily and it's very easy to automate them. Um, so virtual devices are ideal for things like automating malware threat detection uh, and even creating large-scale training databases for AI and for machine learning. Historically, that kind of threat detection for mobile specifically uh, has been limited to static analysis. Um, but Corellium now makes it possible to automate dynamic analysis as well. Uh, and often malware won't make itself uh, readily known until it's activated. So that dynamic analysis is absolutely crucial. Those sound like a number of really important advantages. So thank you for uh, itemizing those. Uh, lastly, Amanda, can you uh, share uh, what are some other ways that government organizations are using Corellium and virtualized systems like it um, to uh, help with their security operations? Absolutely, yeah. So, so we have a number of customers using our platform today for uh, mobile vulnerability research um, and exploit analysis. Um, we have customers using us for uh, restoring backups of real devices for forensic analysis, uh, for ephemeral devices with uh, managed attribution, uh, and even for you know basic security pen testing of, of mobile apps that are um, deployed uh, across an internal government organization. Um, so, so really, it's you know, it's any application uh, where a team might be uh, hitting challenges or limitations using physical mobile devices. Um, our platform can provide uh, capabilities to help overcome those challenges um, and and to enable organizations to better uh, meet tomorrow's mobile cyber threats. Absolutely. Well, Amanda Gordon, uh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for kind of illuminating this area. It's certainly an important one given the rise of mobile devices that we all take for granted and yet know um, we are uh, not far from uh, tremendous threats from malware and other threat actors and why this is even more important than ever. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back Thursday with a brand new episode. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.